through the year and there has been incredible turmoil in 2020. We began the year with a lot of turmoil in our political uh, life here in America. On January 15th, the House of Representatives brought articles of impeachment against Donald Trump for abuse of power. The Senate ultimately did not try him uh, or find him guilty on that, but the division in our politics at the beginning of 2020 is a division like I haven't seen in my lifetime, and things are really, really intense. Right around the same time as this, we began to hear the story about an outbreak of a new virus that we've all come to know is the coronavirus or COVID-19 in Wuhan, China. And it began to spread throughout the world. And by March 11th, the World Health Organization had declared a global pandemic. And this caused people to cancel their vacations and for school to be shut down and restaurants and life as we know it to be shut down as we all closed our doors and engaged in the practice of social distancing making uh, an impact on our culture and our lives in ways that we're still going to foresee. On March 20th, something else happened in our culture that would have a, a detrimental effect to the wider culture, and we still don't know how, uh, how deep and wide the impact of this thing that was unleashed on us <clears throat> on March 20th when Netflix released their docuseries, The Tiger King. This has led to a revival of mullets, and these are pictures from 2020. And I, when I see this, I think, what about the children being exposed to these? But seriously, though, if you have a mullet, we're just making fun. God loves people with mullets, too. But this is something that has definitely become a trend in some places again. But back to the serious turmoil in 2020. On April 14th, an international monetary fund began to talk about a global recession on par with the Great Depression. And by this time last week, we'd already seen six days of racial and social unrest, protests against police brutality, specifically against people of color in our country. And throughout the week, we have heard stories of looting and rioting and peaceful protests and damage and vandalism. And here in uh, Indianapolis, we've had curfews because things have just been uh, tumultuous and there's been unbelievable turmoil in 2020. That's why I think that of 2020 as this powder keg that's causing many of us to be afraid. And a powder keg is something that's getting ready to blow. And in some regards, things have already blown up. There's already been 100,000 deaths due to the coronavirus and 40 million people that have uh, applied for unemployment. But there is reason to believe that things could get more intense and more difficult in 2020. Apparently, every pandemic that has happened throughout history has had a second wave. And so health experts are concerned that we might have a second wave, specifically right when the seasonal flu hits. And if we're not prepared for that, it could be far worse than the first wave. We also have an election this year, a presidential election that is heating up to be a very contentious, very volatile election. And the rhetoric is already pretty, uh, pretty uh, difficult and pretty intense, and it could get even worse. And then, of course, we don't know where the protests and the unrest might lead to. And this year is this powder keg. Into this, I began to preach a sermon series on the book of Acts titled To the Ends of the Earth, not because I think the earth is coming to an end, but rather because of these words that Jesus said. He said that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. He's talking to his disciples right before he's going to ascend into heaven and pass over the responsibility of the movement to these men and women that he had cultivated throughout his three-year ministry. 
It says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts, which tells this story, is absolutely brilliant in the way that it is set up. The first seven chapters tell the story of how the apostles and Jesus' disciples bear witness to his ministry and message in the city of Jerusalem. The next five chapters bring us into Judea and Samaria. So if you think of Jerusalem as Indianapolis, they begin to move it out into the collar counties and the state of Indiana. That would be Judea and Samaria. And the final section introduces us to one of the most notable figures of all history, a man known to us as the Apostle Paul, who goes on three missionary journeys and begins to take this message into the cities and towns of modern-day Turkey and Greece. And then Luke does something really interesting, because as Paul is on this, finishes his last journey, he goes back to Jerusalem, and he ends up getting arrested. And Luke chooses to spend the last eight chapters telling about the trial that the Apostle Paul is under, and then this journey that he has going to Rome. Because you see, as a Roman citizen, the Apostle Paul could appeal directly to Caesar. And it would take some time, but eventually he would get an audience in front of the most powerful person in the known world at that time and have an opportunity to be a witness to the very centers of power. And so i take you over to the map here. Paul, on this last journey that Luke spends all this time to talk about, it starts down here in Jerusalem, and he ends up on this massive boat journey all the way here at the island of Malta. There's a shipwreck. He spends a day and a night in the open sea. He survives that somehow, ends up getting snake-bitten on the island, survives that as well, and finally, finally reaches his destination of Rome where he's going to get his audience with the most powerful person, the emperor of the Roman Empire. But then Luke concludes this epic story, the book of Acts, in the most frustrating and the most brilliant way possible. And I want to take you to the last two verses of the book of Acts. And if you were here with us last week, we talked about these last week. It ends like this. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house. He's in Rome under house arrest. He rented a home. And he welcomed all who came to see him. He was able to welcome people to come see him. He couldn't leave because he's under house arrest, waiting his trial with Caesar. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And with those final words, Luke ends the story of the book of Acts, the story of the spread of the church and the message of Christianity. And it's absolutely frustrating because did Paul die in prison? Did he ever get to speak to Caesar? We don't know from reading the book of Acts, but it's brilliant because Acts ends open-ended because the story hasn't ended. Luke ends it this way because he wants to make a point. The story is not over. Luke is the writer of the Gospel of Luke, and that's the first part of this epic story. And it tells the story of Jesus and his ministry and how it all gets started. And then the book of Acts is part two, which is what we're focused on throughout the summer. But part three is our story. And Luke ends Acts open-ended because the story hasn't ended. Because our story, you and I today in 2020, continue to carry this story forward. And we are to be witnesses to the kingdom of God. And what does it mean to be a witness to the kingdom of God? Well, I spent a whole uh, month back in December talking about this concept of the kingdom of God. But to make it really simple for you today, to witness to the kingdom of God 
is to live as if God is still in control. Despite how it seems, God is still in control. And when you have this basic attitude and when you live this way, you're able to have hope in hopeless situations. You're able to grieve and feel uh, sadness for the difficult things and the injustice in our world, yet still have joy and still give thanks. You're able to have a resilient love, a love that's able to keep on loving people and keep on sacrificing even when they don't deserve it. You're able to be a conduit of God's grace. Grace is giving people what they need and not what they deserve. And right now in our culture, if we just give each other what we deserve, things are going to continue to spiral downward. But we need grace. And to proclaim the kingdom of God, to witness to it, is to claim that despite how it seems, God is still in control. And I know. This feels like the churchy response. It's kind of like when you're going through something difficult and your Christian friend says, just go home and pray about it. And I would agree you should pray about it, but sometimes it just feels like a little bit shallow. And so I wonder, this message of the kingdom of God, would Jesus dare to declare this message in 2020? I mean, if he had to go through what we're going through, the political turmoil, a global pandemic, a global recession, social unrest, would he dare to declare this message in the powder keg that is 2020? And I think he would. Because the year 30 AD, when he was at the end of his ministry, it was an absolute powder keg that was causing many to be afraid. And so I want to take us back to part one of the story of the Gospel of Luke. Luke is divided up into 24 chapters. We're going to be in chapter 19. If I can bring you over to the map here for a moment. Jesus spent most of his time up in the northern part of Israel. That's where he was born. That's where he did his ministry. But Luke is going to tell us that Jesus, while he spent most of his time here, he's coming down here to Jerusalem. And the reason he's coming to Jerusalem is that the powers and the rulers of his day and age, they were already trying to assassinate him. They were coming after him. And so instead of hiding, instead of running, he goes straight to the centers of power. And he goes to Jerusalem. And Luke tells us this about Jesus as he approaches Jerusalem. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city Jesus wept over the city and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And what Jesus understood was this, that the people were living under violent oppression. They lived under Roman rule, an empire that was taxing them heavily. And if you didn't pay the taxes, the Romans responded with brutality. And that that violent oppression, it led some to become so frustrated, so angry at the brutality that it led to violent unrest. But violent unrest, Jesus knew, always leads to more violent oppression. And Jesus was well aware that a cycle of violence was a brewing, and that a cycle of violence is something that communities and societies often get caught up in, and all it does is bring more and more destruction. And Jesus saw this coming, and so he wept. And the reason he was able to see it coming is because of something that happened right around the time that he was born, right in the very region in which he grew up. Back in the year 4 uh, BC, there was an uprising that had happened in the region that Jesus grew up in. And the locals were able to throw off the Roman rule for just a little bit of time, but eventually the Romans came in with overwhelming force. And there was a general by the name of Varus, and General Varus, he was able to squash the rebellion. 
But then he rounded up all the people that were responsible for the rebellion. And there's this road that goes from Sephoris over to the Sea of Galilee. And Varus took all the people responsible and began to crucify them along the road from Sephoris to the Sea of Galilee. And how many were crucified? 2,000. 2,000 people strung up on a cross along a road that many people would travel on. And the reason they did this, this form of brutality, this execution, was to put fear into the hearts of everybody that lived there. You don't stand up against Rome. You don't even raise your head against Rome and the rulers. And it would have emotionally scarred and traumatized everybody in Jesus' time. And so back around the time that Jesus was born, right where Jesus grew up, Jesus understood what the cycle of violence can do to a society. But Jesus was not the only person concerned about the way things were going. In fact, uh, if we jump over to the Gospel of John, which is written a little bit later than Luke, John has a story that Luke doesn't have. Somehow John got some insider information. Somehow John got access to a conversation that happened among some of the rulers that opposed Jesus. And they were worried about Jesus' popularity and where that could lead. And so one of them says, if we let him, Jesus, go on like this, Everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans, who crucified 2,000 people just 30 years ago along this road from Sephoris to Galilee, the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. They're concerned about where this would go. And then the local leader of that time, a man named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, he stands up and says, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man dies for the people than that the whole nation perishes. They're willing to take a life than to have their property and the things that they cherish taken from them. And this is the attitude of the oppressors. They value prosperity and property over people. And at first, it feels like they're winning. But any time that rulers have their values in this sort of way, it ends up creating unrest. And what happened in ancient Israel during the life of Jesus is that a group began to revolt around the year 60. They revolted against the local rulers and ultimately the Romans. And for a little while, they were successful. But again, the Romans came in with overwhelming force and began to crucify people. And they began to destroy the city of Jerusalem and level the temple. And ancient Judaism, temple-based worship, would never, ever take place again after this moment, up until this day. And Jesus he was aware that this was coming, not because he had special knowledge, but because he understood the cycle of violence that afflicts so many cultures at so many places and times in history. And he also knew this, and this is why I think his message continues to be relevant 2,000 years later. He understands that there's many people stuck in the middle. They look at the violent oppression and they're not okay with the brutality that the state is putting on top of people. But they also look at the violent unrest and they realize that almost every revolution that begins to get violent has an unofficial slogan, which is either you're with us or you're against us. And those that stand up to tyranny in a violent way end up becoming violent themselves and tyrannical themselves. And the people in the middle always suffer. And they're stuck in the middle. Which way to go? And Jesus, what he offers to us, is a third way of nonviolent resistance. Jesus doesn't remain quiet. 
He goes to Jerusalem and he speaks truth to power, but he never becomes violent because Jesus has a goal, and that is to stand against evil with outstanding in the way of redemption, of God's redemption. Jesus understands that every single person is a child of God. Every single person has the potential to respond to God's grace. In fact, at one of the most intense moments in his life, when he's up on a cross suffering and just been betrayed and brutalized, he prays for the very people that have done it to him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this is incredible. But if you're a follower of Jesus, this is where this is going. To have this sort of spirit, have this sort of perspective towards everyone you would ever meet, everyone you would ever read about. And we wonder, how in the world can we have this perspective? How in the world can we keep a heart that is able to do this? We need some sort of power. And Jesus promises that power to his disciples. Going back to the promise that is at the center of our series, Jesus says you will receive power. Not a power to overwhelm and overtake your opponents, but a different kind of power, a power through sacrificial love to truly change things. And it's going to come through the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. When the Holy Spirit comes, we get that kind of power. So how do we get the Holy Spirit. We're going to find out in just a moment. But that was just the introduction to the sermon series today because we're going to start in uh, Acts 2. And Acts 2 tells us when the Holy Spirit comes. It, it, it tells us this account of when the Holy Spirit began to fall on the followers of Jesus and they began to go out. Luke tells the story this way. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, Pentecost is significant because it's one of three pilgrimage festivals that, according to the Old Testament, the Torah, that the people of Israel, who had been scattered all throughout the Roman Empire, they're supposed to come back to Jerusalem. So all of a sudden, the population of Jerusalem, it just swells, and there's energy and intensity, and there's people from all over. And this is the day of Pentecost, which is in the summer, 50 days after the Passover, 50 days after our Christian celebration of Easter. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came down from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And this is incredibly symbolic and significant because wind and fire are symbols of the power of God. You might remember the prophet Moses. The first time he encounters God is with a burning bush. That fire then ends up on Mount Sinai. After the exodus, Moses goes up to meet God and the fire's there. Then they build a tabernacle, which is like a mobile tent for the presence of God, and the fire transfers to the tabernacle. And when they finally have a brick and mortar temple, the fire moves to the temple. But the fire had moved out of the temple due to the corruption of the religious leaders and rulers of their day. And so now this fire, it has moved from a place to a people, to a group of individuals, and it's given them a power. We're told that all of them are filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. And remember, there's people from all the surrounding area, and, and they speak different languages, and they hear this, and there's this commotion. People are gathering, and they're asking, what is going on here? Something significant must be happening, but not everybody thinks it's so special. Some, however, made fun of them. They said, they've had too much wine. And Peter hears this. 
Peter, who once was a coward, Peter, who denied Jesus to save his own life, now has become courageous, and he stands up for the first message in the book of Acts, the first message to come from the Christian community after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He first addresses the allegation, these people are not drunk as you suppose, it's only nine in the morning. Hey, if it was 11, maybe, but not nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And this brings us to a segment that we haven't done in a while that I like to call a nerd alert. Nerd alert! The prophet Joel is so significant because the prophet Joel quotes from the prophet Malachi. And I know that you might not know much about Malachi, but Malachi is a heavy hitter. But Joel doesn't just quote from the prophet Malachi. He draws from Zephaniah. And you know, if you're going to draw from Zephaniah, you might as well bring Nahum in there. And if you've got Nahum, you might as well have Obadiah. And if you've got Obadiah, you've got to have Amos. And if you've got these five, you might as well bring somebody like Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, he comes a little bit later. And he gives his prophecy. He speaks his word during the Babylonian captivity. Ezekiel, he's like the next generation prophet. If it was the NBA, Ezekiel, he would be like the Kobe Bryant of prophets. He is so significant. But you know what? If you're going to have all these guys plus the Kobe Bryant of prophets, you might as well have MJ. And so he brings in Isaiah as well. And the point of this is all just to say that by quoting this one prophet, the prophet Joel, Peter brings the weight of nearly half of the prophets. Peter's got deep roots. He's drawn on this massive storyline and bringing it to the forefront to give this explanation for what's going on. So he quotes the prophet Joel. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. What do you mean by all people? The prophet Joel, he answers. He says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Did he say daughters? I mean, sons, yeah. Young men, yeah. Old men, yeah. I mean, God's spirit comes on men, right? But not women. Well, Joel clarifies that. He says, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. If you've ever been in a church environment or heard a teaching or a sermon that denies the fact that God's spirit comes fully on women, that women have the capacity to be able to do ministry just like men, they are mistaken because The prophet Joel says on all people, men, women, young, old, as we'll see, all ethnicities, all types of religions, it spreads everywhere. And God's spirit is poured on all people. Why? Because God values all people. Unlike the corrupt religious rulers who are willing to kill one man in order to save their prosperity and their property, God values the dignity of all people. And then Peter He turns to those very people that had arrested Jesus and conspired to kill him, and he just takes it to him. He says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. You thought that you were taking him out, but God was still in charge. Despite how it seems, God was still in control. It was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Let me call you out and say exactly what you did. But look at this. God is still in control because God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And here's the thing. When death loses its hold, the witness becomes bold. And the the story of Acts ends with the Apostle Paul, and we're told he's proclaiming the kingdom of God with all boldness. And those that are 
are true followers of Jesus and they understand the significance of his death and resurrection, what God has done, they no longer fear death and they become bold to speak the truth no matter what the cost. And then Peter, he reaches back to his deep roots one more time and he quotes, the, or he quotes King David in Psalm 16 and he says this, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, right? Death has lost its hold on Peter. Death has lost its hold on those that are followers of Jesus. And you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Something about Peter has changed. Something about the followers of Jesus have changed. And the people hearing it are noticing something is different about these individuals. And then Peter sums up his great sermon with this final statement. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to it, of it. And so death has lost its hold on us. And this cuts the people listening straight to the heart. They've been waiting for another option between the option of just giving in to the brutality and, and everything that's coming from the Romans or joining those that, that want to engage in violent unrest. They're waiting for some sort of different way. And Peter has just laid it out. You don't have to be afraid and you don't have to be silent. You don't have to become violent, but you don't have to stand down. And so the people are saying, okay, we heard the message. We understand that Jesus represents this new way to be in the world, a way to live free of fear, a way to live with integrity, a way to live with dignity. What should we do? And Peter says this, repent and be baptized. Turn around. Recognize that, that, that in some ways you've been walking a path that is destructive itself. Turn around, be baptized, that is make it public. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And having done this, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive that power that we all need in order to truly love those, even those that are difficult, even those that have damaged and created destruction. And it comes with an acknowledgement that in you and in me, there's a brokenness. In fact, in you and in me, maybe there's even some evil or some destructive spirit. If we're going to battle the evil out in the world, we first have to acknowledge that we've been infected as well. And that's what repentance is about. It is acknowledging our own bias, our own racism, our own destructive impulses. And when we can repent of that and name it, we can be freed of it. And then we can work against it in this world. And then Peter says perhaps the most important thing in his speech. He concludes this way. He says, the promise is for you and your children. For all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. And when I think of somebody who is far off, when I think of somebody right now today, who's probably more lonely than anybody else, Somebody that has done something incredibly destructive, and if he's able to actually look honestly at what has been done, I think of the officer who put his knee on the neck of George Floyd. And here's the thing. I, I think that, that people need to be held accountable for the destructive things that they've, they've done. But we as Christians, first and foremost, our witness is to never forget that each one of these people are equally a child of God. Each one of them is valued 100% by God. 
And I'll be honest, my heart gravitates to the story of George Floyd and the injustice that's happening, and I'm angry at Derek Chauvin, the officer that killed him, and the others. And I'm angry at the systematic abuse that seems to be unaddressed in so many of our police departments. I'm angry at how that puts other police officers in increased danger, good men and women who risk their lives to keep us safe. I'm angry at the situation. And I want to demonize this person, but as a follower of Jesus who prayed for the very people that conspired to crucify him, I got to keep my heart open. Because Peter says the promise is for all who are far off. All who are far off. And we're told that 3,000 become disciples that day. Because I think there was something in them, like there's something in you, and I know there's something in me, that wants a third option. You don't want to give in to the evil of the world and the brutality and the discrimination and the racism, all the dysfunction of the world. You don't want to give in to that. You don't want to just say, hey, that's the way the world is and, and just kind of become pessimistic about it or callous to it. But you also don't want to become destructive and hateful and filled with anger. You want a way to speak of truth about the way things are going on, but a productive way to make a difference. And I believe in that sermon that Peter heard, these 3,000 people, something clicked in their hearts. And so I ask you to look at your hearts. Ask yourself the question, what part of your heart is closed? What part of your heart is it, is it hard to pray for, for people? Who do you have the most trouble praying for and hoping for? Right now, I have a hard time praying for our president and the way that he is leading our country, and my heart is pretty close to him. So daily I'm trying to open my heart and remember that while I don't condone the way that he is handling the situations and the things that he's been saying, that he is a child of God, I continue to pray for him. And if you have a different political orientation, it might be the exact opposite, but the principle is still the same. All of us close our hearts to something. All of us have somebody or something that's hard to pray for, and that's the very thing that as disciples of Jesus we need it open to. Or to put it another way, can you stand against evil without standing against redemption? Because God's work is the work of grace. It's the work of redemption for everyone who is far off. And we, as followers of Jesus, we are to bear witness to the kingdom of God, to this work of redemption. Nobody is too far gone for the reach of God's love. And while we can speak truthfully, about the brutality and the evil in the world, we are to never lose that heart, the heart of God for his children, which is everyone on earth. Luke ends chapter two in this way. He says, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need because they valued people over property and prosperity. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, which is the very place where the people that arrested Jesus and crucified him were, so they continued to speak truth. They weren't silent. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, not angry and resentful hearts, not fearful hearts, but glad and sincere hearts. Because when you believe that God is in control despite how things are going, you're able to have a resilient love. And they praised God and joined the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Being saved from an angry, 
violent view of the world, a fearful view of the world, a pessimistic, hopeless view of the world, being saved and being welcomed in. And I tell you, friends, our country needs us to continue this story, to be witnesses to the grace of God, the fact that despite how it seems, God's still in control to be motivated not by fear or anger or hatred, but motivated by love and a conviction that even though there's evil in the world, the power of God's love is stronger. And if we could just commit ourselves to growing, loving community with one another and being out in the community and bearing witness to the love of God in whatever way possible, that this is the way God changes the world. We will continue in the book of Acts and continue on this story and see how it unfolds. It's not always pretty, but it's absolutely real and it makes a difference. And we know that because we are still here today continuing that story. If you'll allow me, let me pray for you. Let us pray. God, I pray that some part of this story would be convicting in the hearts of those watching today. That whoever it is hard for them to pray for, whoever they might be angry at, whoever they might be fearful of, that they would pray about that person, pray about those things, and open their hearts to it. For the kingdom of God was proclaimed 2,000 years ago by your son Jesus, who said that despite how it seemed in the powder keg of the year 30 AD that you were still in control, and then he passed it on to his disciples, and for the next 2,000 years they kept preaching this message, bearing witnesses to it with words and actions. And it's now ours to carry. And so change our hearts, Lord. Let us be assured that you indeed are still in control and that through us your light can shine and your love can spread. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.